TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. All the artists were talking about their work and doing instructional videos, but many of them were Native American or they were South American or they were Latin American, and they all were talking about their indigenous art and how you really should make pottery that's based on your heritage because it speaks to you. And I was thinking, oh, God, what's my heritage? It's what, English, French? From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Carrie Lowell talks about her career shift from modeling and acting to ceramics and about work-life balance. You know, when they say you, you can have it all, okay, maybe, but not at the same time. I've been reading and loving Architectural Digest for as long as I can remember. The magazine and the website are the first places I go for design inspiration. So when I found out that the editors of Architectural Digest just launched the AD Pro Directory, the ultimate resource for matching designers with prospective clients, I knew I had to tell you all about it. Now, for the first time ever, AD's extensive community of homeowners and design enthusiasts can easily find and hire their favorite design professionals. The directory is a list of AD-approved architects, interior designers, and outdoor specialists that anyone in need of design services can access for free by searching by profession and location. If you're a design expert who is looking to grow your business and want a chance to be featured in AD, apply now. If you're a client seeking best-in-class design services, you can browse AD's extensive list of design experts. Want to be introduced to the best of the best? Explore the AD Pro Directory at architecturaldigest.com forward slash design matters. Carrie Lowell has spent a lot of her life in front of a camera. 
First as a model in the 1980s for designers including Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein, then as an actor. She played Bond girl Pam Bouvier in the 1989 James Bond movie License to Kill, and then ADA Jamie Ross in several seasons of the television show Law & Order. After a break from acting, she reprised that role in the recent reboot of the famed long-running franchise. Carrie Lowell has also spent a lot of her life in pottery studios. The pandemic helped turn a passionate hobby into a career shift, and now she has her own line of ceramics. Carrie Lowell, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Carrie, is it true that your nickname is Karaoke? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us all about that, please. <laughs> well, I sort of have this crazy, um, I listen to a lot of music and therefore know all the words to all the songs. I got the nickname Karaoke because whenever a song would come on, I knew the words ah. and could repeat them uh, pretty accurately. So it's just sort of a silly nickname I got. I was envisioning you in sports bars standing up and singing Total Eclipse of the Sun and so forth. (laughs) It's funny. I don't do a lot of karaoke, actually. That nickname was given to me by a a writer friend, Jonathan Cott. Okay, well, well done. Well done. Name tag. Thank you. Um, You were born in Huntington, Long Island, but moved all over the world with your family until you settled in Colorado when you were about 12. Uh, Why were you moving so much and where were some of the places you lived? My father was a petroleum geologist and they were living in Tripoli, Libya when my mom was pregnant with me. I have an older sister, Jennifer, who was actually born in Tripoli, but my mother's parents lived in Huntington, Long Island. And so when my mom was due to deliver, they actually happened to be on leave in Huntington. And so I was born there. And then I think I went back to Tripoli when I was about maybe less than a month old and lived there for a couple of years. And then we moved to Holland, um, and I have another sister who was born there while my father was working in the North Sea. And then we moved to Virginia and then Texas, where I have another sister who was born. And then we moved to Colorado when I was 12, and that's where my, my father still lives, and two of my sisters, actually. Your father was an award-winning geologist, and I understand he co-authored an article that defined copper models that became the standard reference for exploration geologists worldwide. Um, Were you involved in any of the work that he did? No, only in that he used to take us on tours in Colorado on these hikes, and we thought it was we would much rather be anywhere else but on this hike while he pointed out the geological structures to us. As an adult, I wish I'd paid more attention to it because it's I, I now I'm whenever I'm out in, in nature looking at formations, I'm thinking, okay, what happened here? I, I always see it from th- through my father's eyes. But I think you might be confusing m- my father, James Lowell, with another James Lowell who was a copper geologist magnet. My dad did publish um, a textbook that was used for most geology college courses about structural geology because his whole area was plate tectonics and continental drift. Ah, oh, I got really involved in a lot of these papers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to investigate to see which James Lowell. Yeah, which that that's interesting. You took your first pottery class in high school. But even before that, I know that one of your earliest childhood memories of being creative involved 
finger paint when you were three or four years old. And I was wondering if you could share that memory with our listeners today, because it it's so visceral. Well, my parents bought us an easel, my older sister Jennifer and I, and we're only two years apart. So the easel had two sides and we would stand on either side of it and put up our waxy paper and just go to town. Um, and I just remember these pots of red, blue, and yellow, and it was really uh, an opportunity to stick your hand in and mush it around. And I just remember loving that feeling of the the, the squeegee, gooey, wet, you know, creation of it all. I love that. And I think that clay is, <laughs> has a similar tactile feel to it. But just that thing of just taking nothing, your hand and a, and a substance and creating something out of it. It's magic. It really is magic. And there's something so, I don't know what the word would be. It, it, the word that I'm thinking of is sensual, but it feels even more than that to feel the sort of warm paint or warm clay in your hands and have that ability to craft something from nothing. Yeah, um, it's definitely sensual, for sure. Would you say that this is when your love of tactile things really began? I have always had this, I don't know if it's unusual or normal, but I've always had a thing about of how things feel. Like I used to, my mother used to put my hair on pigtails and she would always tie them with a satin ribbon. And I would always take the satin ribbon out and fold it into little ribs and like push it across my cheek or across mm. my lips. It was just like a total sensual thing. And I could even find the satin on the label of the seatbelt. If we were in the car and I didn't have a ribbon, I would find it and do that. It's like a self-comforting thing. I don't yeah. know. But I've always been very in tune to tactile things. You took your first pottery class in high school where they actually had pottery wheels, which I found so interesting. I've never heard of a high school having pottery wheels. Um, what kind of pottery were you doing back then? Oh, at that point, I was just trying to get the clay centered on the wheel. It was very, uh, it was very, it was the learning curve, you know, and I went to a public school in Denver, Colorado called Bear Creek High School. And, you know, back then the arts were supported in public schools. So our arts class was, was a pottery class and there was probably 10 wheels in it. And we had a wonderful teacher and we'd all just go in there and do our best. But my pottery back then was sort of a wonky bowl if I could ever get it centered. Do you happen to have any of that old pottery, those old pottery creations still in your possession? I don't. I do actually have one that I hand built um, that actually I look back on and think that wasn't so awful. But I do have some from when I got back into pottery because I sort of took a little bit of a break for motherhood. And acting. I wasn't doing it so much when I was doing the James Bond stuff. But then when my daughter was born, I got it back into it. I love that you just said the James Bond stuff. Um, we'll get to that shortly. Um, at that point in your life, what did you think you wanted to do professionally? Was it going to be something in the arts? You know, I never considered that I could make a career in the arts. I came from a very academic family. My dad, as I said, is a ge geologist, and my mom was a music major at Wellesley. And even though that is in the arts, it's funny, I, I always thought that I needed to do something professionally. And I was always told that I'd make a good lawyer, despite my mother, who told me that I was very argumentative. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my best quality to, uh, to get that career. But looking back, in hindsight, I so wish that I had pursued the arts then. 
you know, in the very beginning. When I took an acting class in college, it was the first acting class I'd ever taken. And it was just sort of a extracurricular activity. Nothing that I ever thought I would make a career at. You attended the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I understand that while you continued to pursue pottery, initially, I think your major was literature. It was. It was literature. I read a lot of Russian literature. I read a lot of French literature. Uh, not in French, in English, but... And that's so um, interesting. I, I minored in Russian literature, but in English translation. People are always really impressed thinking that somehow I managed to learn Russian and then have a minor in Russian literature. But I'm like, no, it was all in translation, but I still think it counts. <laughs> yeah, it does count. I I was so into Lermontov. Lermontov? Yeah. Lermontov? Yes, like a yes, Hero Lermontov. of Our Time. Yes, I loved me that too. Book. I loved that book. And then I transferred to NYU from Boulder because I just did a, a single year at Boulder. I... Um, I had been modeling uh, that summer before I went to college, and then I went back to move to New York to continue modeling. How did you first get discovered in modeling? How did that first all come to happen to you? Because I understand it was really kind of a fluke. It was kind of a fluke. I had a high school classmate whose sister was with an agency in Denver, and she said, you should really go in and meet this woman, Vicki Light. It was the light company was the name of the agency. You should go meet Vicky. And I was like, ah, I don't know. That's really mm, made me feel anxious. But I, I did go in and she said, well, you need some photos if you're going to do this. Here's a name of somebody. You should go and, and get her to take your picture. Well, it turned out to be this woman, and maybe you've heard of her before, a photographer named Pamela Hansen. Yes. She was living in Boulder at the time. And I went up there and made an appointment with her. Pamela did all my makeup and shot me in these great photos and then gave them to the agency and they put them out there. Somebody from Forbes was on a talent scout. They came to the agency. They saw my photo. I got a call. I was at my house, my parents' house, which is in the foothills of Denver, not, not in town. And they said, somebody from Forbes is here. They, they'd like to meet you. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't have a car. I've got no way to get there. I'm not going to be able to do that. And they said, well, you're really missing out. This is the chance of a lifetime. And I was practically in tears, but I didn't have any way to get into town. And my parents weren't there, and I didn't have a car. And then about a month later, I got a contract in the mail from Ford saying, we'd like you to come to New York this summer when you leave, when you're out of high school. I was about to graduate. So after much negotiating with my parents and, and Eileen Ford on the phone with them, to assuring them that I would be staying in her home and that I would, and promising them that I would return to the University of Colorado for my freshman year, I was allowed to go to New York that summer. And that's that was my first modeling. And you really had quite an extraordinary modeling career. You were photographed by some of the great fashion photographers of our time, Peter Lindbergh, Bruce Weber. You work with Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren. What was it like? I mean, this was really at a time when the art of modeling was front and center. You know, the supermodel era began. Models were were seen as muses. And I know that you were very much a part of that. What was it like for you to go from high school to the sort of world stage of modeling? It was a heady time. I have to say that when I when I first arrived in New York, I went to Eileen Ford's house for the weekend. She got a call that weekend saying that a model that she had 
booked for a job on Monday had been injured and wasn't going to be able to make it. And did she have anybody that could be a backup? So she had three other models there with her at the house. She brought us to this person's house on Sunday night and said, are any of these girls going to work? I was chosen. I was told to be at the airport at 7 a.m. the next morning. I had literally just arrived that Friday night from Colorado. And I was back on a plane to Four Corners in the West. Like, it's it's Colorado, yeah. New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. It's it's. I was basically back where I had been a month earlier with my senior class doing a senior seminar river rafting trip. And that was just a weird, circular moment of... You think you're going somewhere and you're right back where you started, but in a completely different context. In terms of the supermodels, they sort of came just after me. I think of like Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell and, and Cindy Crawford as the supermodels. And before that, in my, in my era, it was more like Christy Brinkley, Janice Dickinson. But I did get to travel the world. I got to meet amazing people. But I always felt a little bit self-conscious about it all. It's not my natural state to be front and center kind of posing. So I always felt a little awkward about it. That was something that I've always been working through. You never got any kind of headlines about what models and rock stars and so forth are, are often um, written about. It seemed like you've always, you always have been able to keep a really steady presence in your own life as well as in your professional life. Did you have to experience a lot of pressure to be a certain weight or look a certain way? Um, how, how did you manage through that? Well, I do remember showing up for a shoot once and I had been traveling somewhere and definitely put on 10 pounds. And my hair was sort of orange because I'd been in the sun and it just oxidized like crazy. And the client took one look at me and looked at the photographer and said, this is not going to work. And I was fired right there on the spot. And that had never happened to me before. And what can you do? You just have to, I, I didn't go into a downward spiral or anything. I really have to credit my parents with giving me a really grounded childhood. And, and my three sisters, we were all very close. And and still are. And I just feel like that's that's served me in good stead in, in the sort of the crazy world of modeling. By 1987, you began to transition into acting. What made you decide to take that step? You know, it was just an audition that I got for Club Paradise. And my line was, do you have anything to smoke? And, <laughs> and I said, I've done that before. I can do that again. And the next thing I knew, I was off in Port Antonio, Jamaica, and the shoot was went on for, it seemed, five months. It was a really long shoot, and Harold Ramis was the director, and Robin Williams was the star, and Twiggy, and and Peter O'Toole, and Jimmy Cliff. It was the crazy, Andrea Martin, it was all this, the um, Second City people. It was just a crazy big cast, and I was just a beach bunny, really, in it. I was basically a model who had some lines. But it gave me a taste for that collaborative experience. And when you're in a crew and when you're in a group and how wonderful that feels to be part of something bigger. Were there skills and knowledge you learned while modeling that helped you make that transition into acting? Well, being open to being scrutinized or to be looked, <laughs> looked at or watched learning how to kind of st- lose yourself in it, you know, not, not be 
always, you don't always have to be present almost. I mean, in acting, you have to be more present, obviously, because you're exchanging lines. But there's a, in that role, especially, there was just a, a remove because I was wearing a bathing suit that I never in my normal life would have ever put on, you know, really low cut and high cut on the hips and, you know. Anyway. Oh, Carrie, that sounds like the definition of hell to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're walking around oh and everybody's God. got clothes on and you're the only right. one in the tiny little thing. Yes. It, was, it's, it can be intimidating. What advice might you offer to models and actors starting out about their careers? What do you wish somebody had told you at that time about that work? Just don't take it personally. You know, you're going to be rejected so many times for so many reasons that have nothing to do with you. And it's nothing that you need to take on personally because you could really, really get depressed with all that rejection. I mean, my daughter, Hannah, is an actress and she's constantly going up on auditions and she has to hear, you know, I'm sorry they're going with somebody else or I'm sorry you're not tall enough or I'm sorry they want a brunette, whatever. It's a challenge. And so you really have to have a strong sense of yourself that you don't lose it in all the rejection. I know you studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. What were some of the most interesting things you learned while you were there? It's such an interesting school. It is, and I have to correct the record there because what I did was study with a man named William Alderson, who was a teacher at the Neighborhood Playhouse Theater, but I personally did not attend the Neighborhood Playhouse Theater. That was Sandy Meisner. But the techniques were the same. It's the repetition technique, and I really loved it. I loved my class. I loved my teacher. It was really intense, but it taught me a lot about how to just respond and not think. It was a really positive experience. One of your biggest roles was as a Bond girl. You starred alongside Timothy Dalton's James Bond in License to Kill. How did you get the role and what was it like for you to be catapulted onto the world stage like that? Talk about scrutiny. I mean, the Bond girls have their own sort of cinematic universe at this point. They do. In fact, I was just talking with a friend yesterday. I was like, how many Bond girls have there been? There's been... I believe 27, is that, no, there's 27 Bond films and 75 Bond women, something like that, because there's usually two, two in each film, a villain and a protagonist. But I was living in Los Angeles. I got it as an, a go-see like any other audition that I would get. I was told it was a biker chick in a biker bar. I showed up in my leather biker jacket and my jeans and read the lines, and the casting director, Janet Hershenson, said, uh, you know, this is not, this is, you know, this film, this is a Bond film. This is for a Bond girl. You look nothing the part. You need to sex it up. Come on. You can come back on Monday, uh, and but wear something different, and I'll let you have another shot at it, which was very kind of her. She didn't have to do that, but I went out that weekend to the mall, and I found the trashiest pink lame zip-up, like a halter dress. Like if I had pulled the zipper down, it would have fought, come off. And it was short, and I I just went in there, and I did the same thing in th this pink halter dress, and I got the part. It was funny because I had short hair at the time, which I've had a lot of my life, and they weren't 100% sure what to do with me, and which is why they put a wig on me for the initial scenes of the movie, and then I'm supposed to have a transformation and have it cut off. But they, they weren't really comfortable starting out with, with my short hair. I remember that being sort of an issue. But 
the, the Broccoli family were so lovely. And Cubby was alive then. And his daughter, Barbara Broccoli, who was the producer, was fantastic. It was a really, it felt like being part of a family. The, everybody had worked so much together on all the past films at that point that the art department and the special effects department and the armorer, they were all, they'd been in it for life, you know. And my director, John Glenn, had started out as a second unit director and had made his way up the ranks. And so that's how they sort of did it back then. After that film, they really changed it up and they went, they hired a new director. I think, I, I, I want to say, was it Ramey, Sam Ramey, who did a directed one afterward? I don't remember who the next director was, but I just remember that mine felt very sort of of the old fashioned type of Bond films. And then the one that came after that felt much more of sort of had advanced to the modern era well, your character is so unusual in, in re-watching the movie. First of all, I had no idea that was a wig that you were wearing initially, but I was really surprised because I had never seen you in photos or in anything else with the long hair. And then you do have this transformation midway through the film and essentially become like the first Bond girl badass you know, you didn't take any BS, you were, but you had this wonderful dichotomy of looking like incredible in the sort of casino dress with the garter belt with the gun, but then also, you know, with this slicked back, short hair that you'd never seen before in a Bond film. And at the time, I remember it being somewhat controversial. Yeah, she wasn't uh, an ornament on James's right. arm anymore. Yeah. She was sort of a, a, somebody who was going to go toe-to-toe with him. And as a CIA agent, uh, I just remember, you know, they gave me shooting lessons, so I had to fire a gun, and I would just naturally flinch every time I would shoot. It would go off, and they were like, "You can't. You are our CIA agent. You do not flinch. <laughs> you you hold your eyes steady." And so that was something that I had to overcome in that. But it was uh, it was a little different. I was I was definitely not your common Bond girl, and I did like that they had sort of moved it forward in that regard. Oh um, yeah, but they, absolutely. They still had a scene where they like the one on the boat where we're just leaving that bar where we've had a bar fight and James and I are, it's when we first kiss. That was shot in a studio on a boat that some guys were rocking like this. They were splashing water on us and there was a wind machine and the background was just these little twinkling lights that they'd put in in the back of the studio. So what looks like we're floating out on the sea was all done inside. And that's what I mean by the old fashioned because these days they do it, they do it on location. Right. Well, it's interesting because you also are sort of more of the aggressor in that scene. You know, you you kiss Bond. He's usually the one that makes the first move. And I loved that you were sort of so confident in your own sense of who you were to do that. Well, that's the tagline, isn't it? He says, why yeah. don't you wait until you're asked? Right. <laughs> I'm like, why don't you ask me? Yeah. Yeah, she's I more aggressive. That. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You then starred in films like Sleepless in Seattle and Fierce Creatures. But by the 1990s, you said that you never realized all the weeks you spend going on auditions and being rejected. I mean, I think you said at one point you'd been on 150 auditions and not landed a role. It seemed so incredulous to me to go from being a Bond girl to then not being able to get... Um, other roles. Um, how did you keep your spirits up? I, when I'm rejected from one thing, I have to take to my bed for a week. Well, 
in the 1990s, my daughter was born in 1990, so that kept me busy for one. I definitely had something to distract me. And honestly, I've always been a meditator. I learned to meditate when I was 18, and that just really sort of grounded me, put put things in perspective. It, I, I don't want to make, I don't want to sugarcoat it and make it sound like I didn't have terrible days of like, oh, this sucks, and I hate, I hate this job, and I'm not any good. I'm a, I'm an imposter, but I. I sort of somehow worked my way through it. It wasn't, um, believe me, I thought about quitting many times and in fact in, in went to enroll back in school at uh, NYU Tisch School of the Arts and was accepted into their program. And right before I was supposed to start classes, I had the audition for Law and & Order. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Yes. What made you decide to go back to school? Were you thinking about becoming a filmmaker or were you going to study more acting? I was thinking about being a documentary filmmaker. There were some stories that I wanted to explore and I thought that that would be a really good way to do it. It's probably very idealistic because making documentary films is not an easy road. You know, you have to get all the financing and you have to have a really good story and a really tenacity to do it. But it just was an area of interest. And Tish, I mean, I was living in New York. It's one of the best film schools in the country. So it just seemed like a natural thing to do. But I wasn't going to study acting more. I just kind of washed my hands of that. I needed to move on. Mm, two days before you were supposed to begin classes, you found out you landed the part of ADA Jamie Ross in the original Law and & Order. And your first appearance was in the 1996 episode Causa Mortis. Uh, you remained a series regular for many years and then joined the cast of the spinoff Law & Order Trial by Jury. What was it like suddenly working on episodic television in New York? I loved being in New York. We shot at Chelsea Piers. That's where our sound stages were. And I wasn't, it was a 10 minute ride from my house. So in that way, it was ideal. I loved my cast. I love and adore and still do Sam Waterston and Jerry Orbach, who's no longer with us, sadly. Benjamin Bratt, uh, Epatha Merkerson. We just had this amazing group of people and I was so pleased to be a part of it. And the writing was fantastic. We had really good writers. And it, it was just a chance to sink your teeth into a character, even though Law & Order doesn't really care about the characters. <laughs> you never see any backstory or home life or anything like that, really. It's, it's all procedural. But I still got a chance to kind of inhabit Jamie's skin. And, and it was really good practice, I have to say that. I, I really enjoyed it. And, and it took a lot of the stress out of acting. It felt second nature. And I'd only done a, an episodic show before that for A League of Their Own that Penny Marshall created. Yeah. And I had the Gina Davis character, again, with like some long black wig on. That was in front of a live audience with three cameras. And that was all about hitting your marks and, and hitting your line at the right moment. So I'd had a little bit of training for it, but Law & Order was just a joy. My only problem with it, and the reason I left the show after two years, I actually asked to be let out of my three-year contract after two years, was because my daughter was five at the time, and I would leave in the morning before she woke up and come home at night before after she'd gone to sleep, and there would be days that I wouldn't see her. Yeah, and the eight days are like 18 hours long. They yeah, started the at 4 a.m. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, crazy long days, and I could never go like to a parent-teacher conference. I never knew if I was going to be available. They'll let you know the week before what your schedule is. But it had its wonderful parts about it, which I will always think of fondly. 
Dick Wolf, the creator of the Law & Order franchise, described you as a steel fist in a velvet glove. And I was wondering <laughs> if he was referring to your character, ADA Jamie Ross, or you, Carrie Lowell. I think they're they're not that far apart. I remember him telling my agent she's got the right mix of sex appeal and moral authority. I am kind of a bossy boots. I do like things my way, and I'm not afraid to ask for it. Now, that's something that I've learned as I've gotten older. I never, I wasn't like that all the time. But as I've matured, I've realized you can ask for what you want or you can say that what you need. And I think that's what Jamie Ross did. She was very forthright about her feelings and, and what she, how she felt and what she wanted. So I appreciated that about my character. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The original Law & Order was recently resurrected and you've made a guest appearance on the reboot. How has the character of Jamie Ross evolved and, and what was that like for you to go back? Oh, well, it was painful in that I, she, Jamie's gotten older. And so Jamie doesn't look so good on camera as much as she used to. I just remember saying to the, the lighting guy, please don't give me a raking side light. You know, can you put some diffusion up there? <laughs> so I wasn't happy about, I wasn't happy about the way I looked, but also I hadn't acted in a long time prior to that. It felt like 10 years. And I said yes, because I knew Sam was doing it. And we shot some scenes, Sam and I, but they never made it into the final show. So I was really disappointed that it didn't kind of live up to my expectations of what it was going to be. And, you know, it's hard to, what I learned is it's hard to go home again. The, the crew, the cast wasn't my cast and I didn't mm. know anybody. And we didn't have that sort of easy flow that you get when you've been working with the same people for a long time. So I realized that, that that's an important part of it all. And, and that wasn't there. And... And I think that was, as the first episode, the, the, the people that are the ongoing characters are, are still finding their groove. They hadn't found their groove yet either. So it was a good lesson for me in that I realized that I'm in the right place today doing ceramics and not acting. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, yeah. I want to talk to you about the ceramics. I just have a few more questions about, about your acting career. Iterations of the Law & Order franchise have been on television now for over 30 years. What do you think makes this show resonate so powerfully with people? I think that Dick Wolf hit on a formula that is really self-contained in that you don't have to have watched the prior episode 
or the subsequent episode without getting the full story in that one hour slot. You know that you're going to get the full picture from beginning to end in that one hour. And that's powerful because you don't feel like, ah, I didn't see that one before. I'm not going to be able to watch the next one. You know, you you get what you get in that hour. And you know the characters because you've seen them. You know, like Jerry would always have his little one-liner, his little quippy one-liner. And and Sam would always have some sort of moral outrage about how the case was being handled. And we'd always have Stephen Hill. God bless that man. He was a wonderful man. Sum it all up in one little line. It, It was dependable in that you knew the formula. And it was sort of unexpected because you never really knew if we were going to win the case. There were a lot of times where we didn't win in court or the argument didn't hold or the perpetrator got away. And it, I think it closely hewed to how the law operates and, and, how, and how difficult it can be to prosecute somebody and come away with a guilty verdict. And also... One of the main reasons, and I think it's been a huge success, is that it's ripped from the headlines. You know, you mm. could look at the New York Post and, and that will be the title of the next show. It's so interesting because the Law & Order main show, there was that anticipation of, will they be convicted or won't they? And there was often that big surprise at the end that left you kind of breathless. Whereas a lot of the other spinoffs, there is a more satisfactory conclusion um, where the bad guys get caught. They get their comeuppance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and that's sort of, I think, what makes Law & Order SVU so sort of eternally successful is that you know, as gruesome as the crime might be, they're going to jail. Like, they're getting caught, and Mariska's right. going to beat the shit out of them, and they're going to go to jail. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a question that I asked you in the interview that we did for Print Magazine earlier this year about your biggest regret. And at the time, you told me that your biggest regret was marrying at 23 because it cut yourself off from many possibilities or moments when you could have been a better parent to your children or a better child to your parents. And I'm wondering if if you wanted to expand on that a little bit. I mean, you talked about leaving Law & Order for your daughter. Do you feel that you've had to compromise in life in any way in your career and in your family? I mean, the, the part about getting married too early and then being a better daughter or a better, better parent are two, or were two separate thoughts. Um, I did marry at 23, despite my parents' protestations. I thought I knew best, and they were, of course, right, and I never should have done that. I did get to travel a lot, and I got to see a lot of the world with my first husband, but... Uh, in retrospect, I really feel like I didn't need to get married, you know? Same. Uh. <laughs> Mine was at 26, same. <laughs> but you live and you learn, and that's, yep. you know, you, nobody can tell you how it's going to go. You need to live it to understand it. So in terms of, of having to make sacrifices, I think it's really hard to have two actors in a family relationship. I mean, I then went on to marry two actors, and I found that I was the one more, because I wasn't working as much, like Griffin was definitely working more than I was. So I was the one that was home with our daughter more often. And then when when I would get a part, I remember having Hannah with me. Like mm. I remember going to Paris to shoot a film and Hannah came with me just because you're the mom and they want to be with you. So I really feel like I turned a lot. And then when I was with Richard, I definitely turned a lot of things down because... We had our son, and I wanted to be there with him. 
and Richard would go off and work a lot, and, and I would be home keeping the home fires burning, as they say. So, yes, I think, I, you know, when they say you, you can have it all, okay, mm. maybe, but not at the same time. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. People ask me all the time, you know, how do you do what you do? And I'm like, uh, for most of my sort of career life, I wasn't married and didn't have children. I had a completely elastic life. Even yeah. being married now changes how much you can do and when you can do it. And I know as as much as I sometimes fantasize what it would have been like to have children, I would not have been able to have the kind of career that I've had. And I don't know anybody that has it all. I truly don't. No, I think it's a myth. Or let me put it another way. I don't know any woman that has it all. <laughs> that has it all and has great joy in it. You know, right, it's a right. it's a real juggling act if you have it all. It's not a relaxing right. having it all. A lot all. of guilt just, involved in the, the sort of balancing of it all. Definitely. Um, your interest in pottery making and ceramics has been a through line in your life since elementary school. And albeit more in the background until the last couple of years, it's since taken a major role in your life. And, you know, have your own line of ceramics, you make porcelain objects, you make vases, bowls, plates, and more. What brought you back to this particular form of artistry at this point in your life? It happened because my daughter was looking, I was looking for an art class for my daughter. And I used to live down in the village on Sullivan Street. And there was a place called the Children's Aid Society. And they had some ceramics classes and I enrolled my daughter in it. And um, one day when I went to pick her up, I saw that they were having adult classes. And I thought, hmm, I should like, I would like to do that again. So I signed myself up and I started taking wheel classes again. And then I just segued over to Greenwich House Pottery, which is just a couple blocks away, uh, which is a big townhouse that's devoted to ceramics, basically. And I just really got into it and never looked back. And then, again, I was going on a lot of auditions and not getting anything. And I just thought, you know what? What gives me joy? Uh, what's really making me happy here now these days? And it was just doing ceramics, not not going up on an audition where I had to think about how I looked and I was, you know, I was old, too old, or or anything like that. And and it's just been the best thing I've ever done. It just makes me really, really happy to do it. Yeah, you've talked about how the process of pottery gives you a sense of autonomy. You get to decide what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Whereas when you're acting, you're always waiting for somebody to hire you and give you the lines to read and then tell you how they want to shoot it. Can you talk about the evolution of your style? It seems almost from all the work that I've looked at of yours to have sort of been born fully formed. Like you just have this really unique, very original style that just seems to have been born alive the way it is. Well, thank you. That is such a compliment because I'm daily struggling with, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to work out or I don't know how this looks. And maybe that's the role of an artist is just constantly self-questioning. But it's funny, during COVID, I started signing up for a lot of online pottery classes just because... I wouldn't have to travel for them. You know, you could, you could see all kinds of different artists sharing their work and you didn't have to be there in person, which was such a gift. And there's this one group uh, called Gasworks in Brooklyn and they do this thing called Women in Clay and it's only women artists. And all of the artists were talking about their work and doing, and doing instructional videos 
but many of them were Native American or they were South American or they were Latin, Ameri- Latin American and they all were talking about their indigenous art and how you really should make pottery that's based on your heritage because it speaks to you. And I was thinking, oh God, what's my heritage? It's what, English, French? So then I started looking back into old English and French pottery. And this is after I'd already been working for a while. This is only in the last two years. And I realized that the style that I have does sort of echo that kind of porcelain, more fine, refined. There's petals, there's like details that and I think I was unconsciously doing it. I, I mean, at least that's my excuse. I don't. I don't know. But I. I just sit down with a ball of clay and let let it take me where it goes. You know. Sometimes I have an intention going into it and think I'm going to be able to create this thing, and and then it will go off on a side road and it will be something completely different. But I. I think the best thing to do is just let it go that way and not try to, not try to impose too much about my vision, because I think you lose something on on the journey. You seem to take a lot of inspiration from nature, um, very naturalist aesthetic, organic shapes. Many of your pieces are adorned with very intricate detailing, often in the form of piercing or pinched edging, delicate petal assemblages, which are just stunning. Um, you said that you find this odd because you've always seen yourself more as a tomboy. And so I'm wondering if what do you make of this sort of dichotomy with the style of your ceramics, which are so delicate and, and feminine and sexy? Thank you. Thank you. I've never called them sexy before, but I appreciate that. Oh, <laughs> the, the, the bowls with the petals inside? Oh, sort yeah. Of stacks of petals? Ugh. Oh, the the gazing bowls. Thank you. Those are the gazing (laughs) bowls. Um, Well, I think it's the expression of that. It's that I don't express that side of myself in my daily life. I don't dress that way. I I rarely, you know, wear makeup or heels or, you know, I'm very, I am a tomboy in my dressing. I don't know if that's my Colorado upbringing or what, but I feel like my ceramics is the expression of my feminine side. It's the expression of the woman who's, who makes the, the cooking pot or makes the the household objects or, you know, adorns herself in flowers or, I, I don't know, I, I'm also a very avid gardener. So they all kind of cross over with each other. I remember in the questionnaire you, you had about uh, in the print thing, you know, are you religious? What is your, what is your, is there an afterlife and what does it look like? And I think I wrote nope. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have to preface that with, as the daughter of a geologist, I never had a religious upbringing. I was always, you know, the earth was created in, you know, 100 million years. That's the way it is. There's, And that's what it is. And so I never really questioned that. But nature is my church, and I'm constantly trying to recreate it in my ceramics. If there was a worship that I have, it's it's worshiping nature in, in the creation of my ceramics. Um, and that's why I'm always repeating flowers or floral motifs or, I mean, flowers to me are just like the most amazing gift that we have and flowers and birds. Yeah, we wouldn't exist without them. I think we forget that a lot. Yeah. You work mainly in porcelain um, and you've also used gold luster in the style of Japanese art called kintsugi. Can you talk about what that is? Kintsugi is is a Japanese technique that's made to repair broken pottery. And they use this sort of resin 
to join the pieces and then brush gold dust over the top of it. So when you have a broken piece, it becomes even more special because you've repaired it and, and, and adorned it even with the gold. And I often will have a crack or a breakage or something, a mistake in my ceramics. And so instead of chucking it or throwing, you know, tossing it, I will put some gold luster on it to accentuate it and just sort of show the flaws. I think that's, we all have them. <laughs> we might as well embrace them you know, instead of trying to hide them. Um, you said this about pride and ceramics, and I found it really fascinating. And I want to share it with you again so that uh, we can talk about it. You state, ceramics has removed any pride that I might have in my abilities. Ceramics teaches you to let go of pride because there are just so many variables that can go wrong. There are so many steps along the way in the making and the firing and the glazing that you can ruin a piece. So you never really know what you're going to get until you've unloaded the kiln at the final firing. If you do actually come up with something you like or that exceeds your expectations, that is a moment of pride. And Carrie, I'm wondering, how do you manage all of the not knowing in the process of making something? You know, it's trial and error. It's it's time and time again, having things that don't work out and learning from your mistakes. And it really just takes a lot of practice and a lot of experiments. You know, what if I put this here? What if I try that? And no, oh, nope, that didn't work. Or that temperature was too hot. Or this glaze runs. Or that clay body slumps. Or there's just, there are just so many variables that go into making something. And that's part of the joy of it. You just you just never know what's going to be a happy accident. And I learned early to take notes so that I can try and recreate if something does go well. You're never finished with ceramics. You know, that's one of the things I love about it is that there's always another possibility. There's always a different way to do it. There's always another test tile. There's always another glaze. There's always another clay body. There's, you know, it's endless. Can you talk a little bit about your color palette? It's very neutral, very white. What made you decide to to take that direction with your work? The simple answer is, is that I could get some really good white glaze that was working in my studio. And I thought, well, this is working. Let me stick yeah. with that. But I also like the purity of it. In my own home, I have a lot of white ceramics. And I also like that the, the porcelain is a, is a clay body that I work with often because I like its translucence and its elasticity. And if I were to put a color on it, it feels like it would almost mask it in a way that I don't want to do. I, I realize that now ceramics has taken a different tack in that everybody's like using a lot of color and globs and texture. and Yeah, things are very blobby now. I did notice that. They're blobby and they're also flaky. They're, everybody's using that sodium silicate that looks like a, a riverbed, a dry riverbed. I'm actually trying to m move into a little bit more color because I was getting bored with the white. And so I'm I'm working with paper clay now, which is a clay body that has a lot of paper fiber in it. And it's kind of great because it can go really big scale. That's another thing I'm trying to do is scale up. But the white just always feels quiet to me. There's something about it that just feels serene. And often because my pieces do have so much going on with the petals and the stuff and the pinching and the piercing the white sort of just kind of calms it all down. How have you gotten your ceramics to look so thin and delicate? I'm thinking particularly of the eggshells. 
those, I made a mold. I learned how to do plaster mold making of a, a big gourd, like a big squash. And then I slip cast it, but I slip cast it with a really, really thin layer. And I don't fill it up all the way and I pour it upside down and then the edges go the way they go. Yeah, they're so unusual. I mean, it's taking something that, you know, you'd either throw into a compost or throw away and making a piece of art out of an eggshell or what looks really, truly looks as delicate as an eggshell. It's magnificent. But you also are a part of a group of artists who use discarded gun parts to make incredible hand-glazed candle holders and other ceramic wares. Can you talk a little bit about how that line of work came to be? I was approached by a woman named Jessica Mindich, who had this uh, group called Caliber Collection, where she had initially started trying to raise money to do gun buybacks in communities that were, you know, had a lot of gun uh, violence. And so she would go into the sheriff's office and buy, you know, everybody would get $50 to bring in their gun. So that's what a gun buyback is, and the gun would be destroyed. And she would dealt a lot with different detectives, and they would give her gun parts. She asked for the parts of the guns that had been destroyed, as well as the casings that had been found at scenes of crime. Crime scenes, hello. And um, she asked me and a few other artists if we would create something out of the gun parts. So I took the barrels, the gun cartridge, where all the bullets go in, and I cast them and made them into candlestick holders. But we wouldn't know it was a gun part unless no, yeah, unless you knew it was a gun. But then we would sell them, and a portion of the of the profit would go back into Caliber Collection for the gun buybacks. So ingenious. There's a quote on your website that I love, and you state, "There's a distinct calling to lose yourself that is apparent in both acting and throwing ceramics. Each are transcendent in their own way, in the sense that something is always operating through you." And I've been talking to a lot of artists about this notion of this sense of a muse moving through you instead of by you. Um, I talked to Rick Rubin about that recently, who writes quite a lot about it in his book. Can you talk about the difference of the creative spirit moving through you instead of created by you? Well, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying before is about like, I'll go, I'll start with an intention and then... If I'm in the flow, and I do call it a flow because it's sort of, you, you're not thinking about it. You're just, your hands are doing it and you could be, you know, listening to design matters, <laughs> which I often do in my studio. But you could be, your brain could be somewhere completely else, but your, your hands are, are going through the process and making something. And I think when I, when I can get in that zone... The things that I end up with at the end, I'm not saying they're always great, but they usually lead me on a in a direction that I can then develop more. And I think it's about paying attention to that that divergence from your initial goal or initial intention that kind of allows you to sort of create in a more free flow sort of way. I love the space. Like when you're done, you go, wait, oh, what? I just did that? Yeah. And also how much time has passed that you have no notion of having passed. It feels like five minutes and it's three hours. Sometimes when I'm doing my research, I look up and I can't even believe that several hours have passed since I started because I was just so intrigued by what I was doing. But I do find in the making of things, there's a real distinct difference between 
something moving through you, which tends to feel much easier and the work feels more relaxed and something being created by you sort of more cerebrally, which always tends to me to feel more tortured, (laughs) at least in my case. And I'm wondering if you have that too. Well, it is more tortured. I find that, you know, I will create a piece and somebody will ask for it again. And that's when I'm like making it and I'm just reproducing. And that's, it's a very distinct difference uh, for me because I'm like, okay, I got to make this, I got to make that, you know, and I know the program, I know the steps, which is a reason I don't really like to do a production pottery. I don't want to make the same iteration over and over again, but I do relish the times that I get to just have a ball of clay in front of me and say, well, where's this going to take me? In fact, I, I don't throw anymore. I mean, I still have my wheel, but I just don't tend to use it so much because it feels mechanical to me. And I don't really want that element in the making. I'd rather do it with my hands and, and see the mark of my hands. And it just is, it feels freer and it feels more authentic. Yeah, it reminds me of something that Joni Mitchell said on one of her live albums. I think it was Miles of Isles, where somebody yelled out for her to play something, one of her hits. And she was like, you know, nobody ever asked Van Gogh to repaint Starry Night. <laughs> <laughs> love Joni. typical Joni. It's so perfect. It's yeah, great. Um, Carrie, the last, the last thing I want to talk to you about today is longevity. I know you had a milestone birthday recently, a couple of years ago. I also had one last year. Yeah, same grimace. Happy birthday. (laughs) What have you learned about aging from, because you have been really open about your age and your experience. What have you learned about aging, both from your experience in modeling and in front of the camera and from your experiences now making art? Well, I am just really grateful that I have my art at my age because I can do that at any age without judgment or, and, and, and only will, will gain as uh, from my experience and my, my longevity in it. If my body will keep up, my hands are a little bit arthritic, but in terms of acting and modeling, I, I don't want to have to try to stay young. I don't want to have to try to be beautiful every time I step out or it's too much pressure. And it makes me anxious, and I'm really happy to have been able to step away from it. And ceramics has allowed me to step away from it because my creative energies have been able to be focused elsewhere and not on my appearance. I just feel really fortunate that I have clay to, to engage me. It's interesting in the way that you've, whether consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or just by accident, created this arc of your career with so many different chapters doing so many different things that in many ways have all informed the subsequent chapters. Yeah, they kind of, without any sort of pre-planning, they just sort of (laughs) fell from one into another. You know, I guess that's the way to do it is just take it as it comes and try to be open to the possibilities uh, and say yes, just trying to say yes to it all. I've just been had a very fortunate run. That's all I can say. I've I've been healthy and I have beautiful children and I like where I am right now in my life. And uh, I wouldn't trade any of it, but I'm, I'm really happy to be where I am. Carrie Lowell, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you so very, very much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It was my pleasure. You can see what Carrie Lowell has been working on in her studio at CarrieLowellCeramics.com and the1818Collective.com. 
This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.